Hey, gang, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And uh, today uh, we are going to take a look at a side of our genome that I think does not get enough press these days. I think we are often uh, given a prettified, cleaned-up portrait of the genome that presents it as a kind of beautifully composed, carefully revised, and ultimately perfected script. Like, you know, a piece of writing with nary a word out of place. And I do understand how people could get that impression if they were to only look at the results, the wondrous spectacle of life on Earth, all those creatures and plants so elegantly adapted to their environment. But if you were to look closer, to zoom in on the molecular level, where the genetic action is, you would see something a whole lot messier, more erratic, and quite imperfect. The clutter of the writing desk itself, as it were, You'd see fragments of failed drafts, some pretty clumsy sentences, some apparently aimless scribbling, and overall evidence not of presiding genius, but of a committee of hardworking hacks. Of course, it all works out to some extent in the end, but that is thanks to the editing provided by natural selection. Okay, I'm going to abandon the uh, writing metaphor altogether now and get literal and uh, talk about an example of what I mean the phenomenon known as jumping genes. These are sequences of DNA that replicate and move and actually spread throughout our genome just because they can. In fact, they got so good at this that uh, by now they make up a large percentage of our total DNA. And they might have taken over even more real estate were it not for other genes that have uh, developed ways of holding the jumping genes in place and keeping them from jumping. And it does not end there. Some jumping genes have evolved ways of busting loose and going rogue again, and the repressor genes, in turn, some of them have come up with new ways of clamping down and uh, grounding the jumping genes. And so it goes, a kind of back-and-forth turf war that has been uh, going on for a very long time in all kinds of plants and animals, including humans. And uh, the reason we know this is that scientists can now see traces of this molecular evolution at work. One of those scientists is, in fact, my guest today on the show. She is the molecular biologist Sophie Salama of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute at UC Santa Cruz and the UC Santa Cruz Genomics Institute. And she and her colleagues have uh, devised some ingenious experiments that show the intragenomic tug-of-war in action. And they've begun to get some insight into how this has played out over evolutionary history and what it might mean for organisms like us. Stay tuned for my interview with Sophie Salama. Sophie, can you recite for me the so-called central dogma of molecular biology? Oh, so the central dogma of molecular biology is the concept that DNA goes to RNA goes to protein. So the DNA, our genome, Mm -hmm. the big cookbook, Right. Gets translated into specific little messages mm-hmm. in this intermediary molecule called RNA. Right. And that gets really made into whatever the recipe specifies. Exactly. Which is protein. Right. So you've got the big cookbook, you've got the individual recipes, and they say, make me a batch of hemoglobin. Exactly. Or insulin. Right. Or collagen. Or what's your favorite protein? 
I guess I would say a transcription factor. Oh, <laughs> and we'll explain what that means. That'll come into this interview a little later. So we have this simple idea, and that was, um, I think that was etched in stone tablets by Francis Crick back in like 1956. Right. Uh, he of, of uh, Watson and Crick, co-discoverers of the DNA double helix. He said, okay, here's how the genome works. It's step one, step two, and you make protein. That's mm -hmm. it. But it isn't so simple, is it? Right. And one of the big surprises when we sequence the genome is it turns out that the part of the genome that is those RNAs that get transcribed and then made into proteins, that's like 3% of our genome. So it turns out that there's all this other stuff. And that's, you know, sometimes referred to as the dark matter of the genome and that's been sort of the big mystery and is, is to some extent the raison d'etre of the Haussler lab is to try to figure out what is all that other stuff, how does it get there, and what does it do? David Hauser's lab mm -hmm. at the uh, Howard Hughes Medical Institute mm -hmm. at uh, UC Santa Cruz? Yes, and the UCSC Genome Institute. And you're part of that too? Yes. Um, so you guys um, collectively have been working to figure out what this extra 97 or 98 percent of the human genome is. If it's not what was classically referred to as genes, those stretches of DNA that specify proteins, mm -hmm. if it's not that thing, then what the heck is it? Right. Um, do you know much about the history of this mystery DNA that for a long time had the, and still does, have a kind of unfortunate name, junk DNA? People thought it might just be pure crap that just accumulated alongside the meaningful parts. Right, right. Like, when did we start wondering about that? Well, I mean, I think to some extent when the genomes started to be sequenced mm -hmm. and we started to realize. Um, but I guess there were hints way earlier in that the sort of concept that our genome is dynamic and changing has been around for quite a while. And now with the hindsight of genomics and, and looking at sequences and being able to compare sequences between different organisms, we have become aware of the origin of quite a lot of that junk DNA. And um, that gets us to transposons or jumping genes. Jumping genes. Sounds great. What are they? <laughs> <laughs> so transposons, which are sometimes called jumping genes, are bits of DNA that get copied and pasted into new places in the genome. And it turns out that these copy-paste events represent a majority of the sequence in our genome. About 50% that we can recognize as relics of these jumping gene events, but probably more <laughs> than that. It's just our ability to recognize them as transposable elements sort of stops at about 50% of the genome. When we call transposons these things that are called jumping genes, when we call them genes, are they the same? Do they code for proteins just like all the other genes we've been talking some about? Some do and some don't. So um, in order to jump, you need a couple of things. You need a way to... Uh, replicate the transposable element. And so uh, if it's a DNA transposon, you, that would have to be a DNA polymerase. 
If it's an RNA transposon, it has to be the special enzyme called a reverse transcriptase, which actually takes RNA back to DNA, which is the opposite of the central dogma. <laughs> the other thing that you need is um, a way to cut the genome at a new location so that you can paste the DNA back in there. Right. But um, probably we should review a few basics. I mean, DNA is like a string of molecular letters. Mm -hmm. It's an alphabet of only four letters. Right. But... With those four letters, you can spell out all kinds of amazing things. You can tell the machinery of a cell how to make all kinds of proteins. Some of those proteins can be enzymes that actually do things. Right. And if you hit the jackpot as far as a gene that wants to spread, you might actually have a sequence of letters that spells out, copy me and right. do it like this. Exactly. Right? And if you do, like, for instance, if you specify an enzyme that actually just turns right around cuts you out of the genome and moves you to a different place. Right. Or turns you into RNA and then copies that RNA back into DNA in another mm -hmm. place in the genome. Mm -hmm. Man, you could spread around really fast. Absolutely. <laughs> and that would be bad in, the most, in most cases. It'd be like weeds taking over the garden? Exactly. Is that what's happened to us? Um, well, that's the interesting thing is when we look at the genome, we see waves of retrotransposons. So we can see evidence that a particular type of retrotransposon got really good, and it littered our genome. So we see a number of events where we, we have a new piece of DNA in the genome, and then it stops. And, and all those bits, they start to decay. So they start to accumulate mutations. And based on the rate of mutations that we see, we can age them. We can figure out when that wave of retrotransposition happened. And so that's what we see is that we see these waves. And we've kind of glossed over it, but there are a number of different classes of these jumping genes. Um, the most common in the human genome are um, line elements, long interspersed nuclear <laughs> elements, um, and lines are special because they are fully functional. They contain all the components, so they contain protein coding genes that do this cut and paste work. There are additional types of elements um, called signs, short <laughs> interspersed nucleic elements. And signs are parasites on the lines. So they actually use the machinery that the line has to do the cutting and pasting. But oh, wow. Was there a time historically when the genome was pristine? It just consisted of sensible stretches of DNA that each did something, you know, for the organism, whether it was a bacterium or a multicellular organism, and it slowly got filled with these self-copying genes, these jumping genes, uh, um, like probably, I say, like weeds? I mean, I guess maybe in the primordial sense, but these transposable elements, we believe, are derived from viruses. And um, it turns out that even bacteria have viruses that invade their genomes. But <clears throat> one thing that you do see is that in certain situations, there's very strong selection to get rid of extra DNA. So many bacterium and viruses um, don't have a lot of extra DNA. And so they 
would be the closest thing to this uh, idealized, pristine genome because they only maintain the bits of DNA that they need to survive. Hmm. So they're they're good at uh, keeping weeds out of the garden. Right, right. And we aren't. We aren't. And so that's like, <laughs> why aren't we? Um, and that gets to some some really interesting concepts, which is uh, this idea that part of what makes different species unique is not necessarily the proteins that they make, but when and where they make them. And so this is the whole field of gene regulation. And there is some reasonable data that suggests that more complex organisms have more regulatory DNA and that this sort of gene regulatory network is really what's important for making species unique and do the wonderful things that the various organisms on our Earth do. Um, You mentioned viruses a moment ago. And that transposons maybe came from viruses? Probably. Probably? Um, Yeah. I mean, you can see similarities with known viruses, exogenous viruses. But what happens is that the endogenous retroviruses, they... Wait, wait, wait. Endogenous retrovirus. So retrovirus is a virus that has its genome is is an RNA molecule. And probably the most famous retrovirus right now is HIV. This is a, a virus that, as you say, it doesn't it doesn't consist of DNA. It consists of RNA, and that RNA gets copied into DNA that implants itself in our genome. Right. And that's how it does its dirty work. Well, that that's the latent phase, and then when it goes lytic, right, it starts making copies of itself, making more and viruses, packaging those copies into a viral particle, <clears throat> excuse me, with, with viral proteins. It, it sneaks the instructions for making itself into our genome. And those instructions at some point get turned on, start manufacturing HIV virus. Right. Which that whole process is what does us in sometimes, makes right. us sick. Right. Um, so these endogenous retroviruses, which are no longer viruses, they've lost the ability to make those proteins and make a viral particle and leave the cell and go to another cell. But they've retained the ability to copy themselves and move to another place within the genome. Ah, so these are ancient, should I say ancient viruses? Mm-hmm. That at one time invaded our cells, uh, smuggled their instructions into our genome, but over time lost the ability to create new viruses, to have those instructions get turned on mm-hmm. and and obeyed to create new viruses. Instead, they just sit there in our genome. They've been doing so for how long? Millions of years? Yes, yes. Oh, my God. And occasionally copy themselves not to make new viruses, but just to make jumping genes that get copied throughout our genome. Mm-hmm. If we were to look at our genome, and some people have called it the master plan, the operating system, I called it the cookbook, you know, the book of life. Mm-hmm. Instead of nice sensible sentences one after the other, like a really coherent book. I think it would look more like a a wall of graffiti, it sounds like, you know? Mm -hmm. All kinds of scribblings and jottings. And and some of it's repetitive. So you see the same (laughs) word, the same tag in many places in the genome. Yes. And, um, but that actually makes for some pretty exciting possibilities. 
And um, and so I'm hoping that you're going to ask me about um, Barbara McClintock and. Uh... Oh yeah, we got to get into some history. <laughs> yeah. So the the whole category of um, you know DNA that we're talking about, the jumping genes, the transposons, these stretches of DNA that get copied and then uh, move around the genome uh, and gradually spread throughout the genome until they're shut off or they decay so they can't do that anymore. These were all discovered a long time ago. They were discovered even before we knew really anything about DNA. That's correct, yes. Tell us the story. So there's an amazing woman named uh, Barbara McClintock who was a scientist in the... um, I don't know exactly when she started. These seminal discoveries were were made in the 50s. And so she made a, a number of important observations. She was a expert in the newly emerging field of cytogenetics, which is basically looking at DNA chromosomes. And she actually was the one who really proved that genetic traits were you know, specific locations on DNA. Wow. And so she, but that's not what she's really recognized for. What she's recognized for is this concept of jumping genes and transposable elements. And by the way, she was studying an organism that's full of transposons, right? Corn. Corn, yeah. Right. And and the phenotype that she was looking at was variegation in, in corn kernel color. And the fact that you would have these colorless, which really means white or yellow, kernels, and then an individual kernel would have more or less of these streaks of purple or brown. And the genetics behind it is is actually kind of complicated, but the insight that she had was that there had to be an unstable bit of DNA that was moving around to cause this variegated phenotype where you would get um, var- variable amounts of color within one kernel of corn. Mm. She made those observations in the 50s. They were largely ignored. And as a matter of fact, in the 60s, when Jacob and Minot came up with the operon theory, which um, basically showed how bacteria turn on genes, and that didn't require these transposable elements the field basically decided that she was wrong. But of course, she was right. (coughs) And later, Britton and Davidson realized that if you had these mobile elements that were moving around in the genome, that they had the potential to be controlling factors for many genes at the same time and put forth this idea that you could ge- generate a regulatory network where you co-regulate you know genes all involved in the same process by means of these repetitive these similar bits of regulatory DNA. And so their work came around in the 70s and that sort of led to this resurgence of of interest in Barbara's work. And she ultimately got recognition. Right. And won the Nobel Prize in 1983. Do you think, though, the reason some of her work was dismissed was sexism? Um, uh, you know, possibly. <laughs> um, but also just it was so counter to the prevailing views in the field at that time. The, the view was that there is this book. It is written, and things stay where, where they started. Right. right? They don't right. move so around. So this idea <laughs> of things moving around was not uh, readily accepted. Now, um, when we talk about genes jumping... Are they doing that in us right now? I mean, like, uh, over what time span does this happen? 
Yes, it, it's happening all the time. It only matters to some extent if it happens in the germline, right? So if it happens in the, in the cells that give rise. So either early in the embryo until the cells get specified to being germ cells, because those are the events that are going to get passed on to um, your progeny. So let's make it clear, germ cells are sperm or egg cells. Mm -hmm. If it happens in them, then it's going to be transmitted. <laughs> well, potentially. Potentially, if you have kids. <laughs> but uh, if it happens, say, in a skin cell, it's not going to have any major effect for you know for history. But but while we're sitting here, are, are, are our genes jumping somewhere in our bodies, possibly? Possibly. And actually, there's a whole body of research um, in the nervous system. Um, that suggests that uh, maybe not now, but as our neurons are being born, as we are creating our brain, that during that period, transposons get reactivated. And that's a fact that's been documented. Um, what's controversial is whether those transposition events somehow contribute to the identity and the diversity of phenotype of neurons in our brain. Using but, too many technical terms sorry. here, Sophie. The phenotype of our neurons? So the, the, the roles, the, the sp specific role of a particular neuron, if it somehow gets a little bit of a different identity mm -hmm. because of a transposon jumping into a new location in that neuron. So I think... We've got a picture now. You're telling me that maybe the genome long ago was as sensible and as straightforward as we once imagined it to be. Mm -hmm. But since then, across all kinds of organisms, aside from those bacteria and viruses that really clean up their genome all the time, mm -hmm. the rest of us are full of these multiple copies, like the Xerox machine kind of ran amok. Mm -hmm. If you were to read it, you know, you'd see all these repeated phrases over and over again. It just looks like some drunk wrote it. I mean, it wouldn't read like a, a straightforward, you know, narrative. So this has been going on for millennia, for eons, mm -hmm. and it's going on now in us. Right. And it can be bad, right? Right. I mean, if a jumping gene jumps into the middle of a very important gene and puts some gobbledygook in the middle of that sentence... It could screw me up pretty bad, right? That's correct. Like in what ways? Um, well, that protein would either be non-functional or potentially worse, gain a function it's not supposed to have. And there are known genetic diseases that are, in fact, caused by one of these uh, jumping gene events. Such as what? Any we'd, we'd be familiar with? Uh, none. Pretty I don't obscure. Think any that you, you're familiar with. Mostly they're rare diseases. Uh, um, there are a few cases where, um, you know, on some rare island population, uh, one of these events has spread amongst that local population because if you have an inbreeding situation, you can reinforce these mm. deleterious events. But the reality is, is that even though these bits of gobbledygook are spread throughout our genome, for the most part, they don't get expressed. So we, you know, we earlier we were talking about that 
that central dogma that in order for a gene to actually do something, it has to get expressed. Turned into RNA. RNA and, and then, then into potentially protein. In, into protein. And so it turns out that these, if you look at the parts of the genome where these transposable elements sit, they're usually off. And that regulation is very robust. There's multiple layers of regulation leading to that. And so that is kind of what's protecting us. Protecting us. Um, before we get into that protection mechanism, you also implied or said earlier that the fact that we've kept these transposons, that we, the fact that we haven't completely weeded the garden, mm -hmm. unlike bacteria and viruses, the fact that they are so common among all kinds of animals and plants, and that maybe half of our total genome is made up of these repeated jumping gene elements, mm -hmm. suggests that they have a function, that, the, that they're not just not bad for us, that maybe they do something good for us. Yes, yeah, so there we have been able to find examples where specific jumping genes are, in fact, serving very important um, functions. Usually, it's a regulatory function, whereby this is now a sequence of the genome that specifies when and where a nearby protein-coding gene should get turned on. There are also examples where these elements get incorporated into a protein-coding gene and actually become part of, uh, you know, a variant of that protein. I think um, it might be kind of head-spinning for people to think this is all an accidental process. Once you create a system as complex and capable of self-reproduction like long strand of DNA or multiple strands of DNA and all the machinery that goes with it, you start getting stuff happening mm -hmm. that is just pure happenstance, right? Right. So things start duplicating themselves. Some of them turn into, maybe they turn into viruses that mess us up. Some of them turn into good things, good innovations, material for evolution. Right. And that's the process of natural selection is finding those good things and the person or animal or plant that has those good things is more successful. And in this case, successful means reproduces better. So passes those happy accidents on. Whereas if the happenstance event is a bad thing and that person or animal or plant is less fit, then it's less likely to reproduce. And even though that event happened, we'll never see it because it's a dead end. Mm -hmm. So we've got this kind of laboratory mm -hmm. constantly, you know, um, performing little experiments in the form of little changes to animals and plants and bacteria and so on. Some of those changes work out in nature. The anteater gets a longer tongue, gets to eat more ants, does right. pretty well, right? On the other hand, a giant lizard who had a good time in the Jurassic uh, when the temperature gets colder outside doesn't do so well and dies off, right? Mm -hmm. A naked ape that walks upright uh, and has a big brain gets lucky for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, it is amazing to think that um, just having bits of DNA uh, that you know, through a series of mutations or whatever, develop the ability to copy themselves and start doing so throughout the genome 
could then form this regulatory network. In fact, we should really talk about gene regulation. This is a huge story. Mm-hmm. Back in the early days of Watson and Crick, they knew hardly anything about this, right? Right. I mean, in fact, I think school kids are probably still taught the simple version, you know, that the genome is this string of instructions. They tell ourselves what to do, and that's the end of the story. Actually, it's the regulatory system on top of the genome that really tells things what to do. That's right. And where a lot of the complexity comes in. Right, right. Because if you look at our genome, I mean, we have fewer genes than rice. We have 20,000 genes. Right. We have about a third less genes than a water flea. We have about half the number of genes, and I know these figures are estimates of rice. We have a lot less DNA than the marbled lungfish. So some of those are situations where there have been actually whole genome and whole chromosome duplications. Ah. And so those numbers sometimes can be a little bit misleading in the sense that... They're cheating. They're cheating. Yeah, they're just duplicating um, things. But uh, but no, it, it, it's a very good point. And why do those... Why do those organisms maintain these, you know, extra whole copies of chromosomes? Um, You know, that's an interesting question, and there's actually a number of reasons behind them that kind of are are maybe too complicated to go into. But Mm. it's definitely, I think the gene number is not necessarily the right thing to go for. Nor the total amount of DNA. And so what I'm thinking is we've got about 3.2 billion DNA letters, Mm -hmm. right? Base pairs, they're Mm -hmm. called. And yet the things that are made from that genome are even more complicated. Mm -hmm. Our brain, which is supposedly the most complicated structure in the universe, has, um, well, one estimate is that we have um, about 125 trillion connections in the brain. Each of those connections may have a 1,000 molecular-scale switches, therefore 125 quadrillion switches in a single brain. So how does the genome, which doesn't have anywhere near that level of complexity, at least in terms of the number of base pairs, produce something as complicated as the brain, not to mention the rest of our body? Right. So, I mean, we believe that it relies in this combinatorial expression pattern, and that's why a liver cell is different than a brain cell because they each express a different combination of those genes. And so how do you get those different expression patterns? And that's where this concept of regulatory DNA comes in. Um, There's also something called regulatory RNAs. (laughs) Mm. So it turns out that RNA molecules sometimes can come back and influence what parts of the genome get expressed at what times. And this is alluding to this whole other level of uh, so-called epigenetics, which has to do with how DNA is packaged and, and the proteins associated with DNA modified to create uh, a, a transcriptional landscape where sometimes something gets expressed and sometimes something doesn't get expressed, another part of the genome can't get expressed. Yeah, I want to just explain again that what we mean when we say expressed. The genome has the instructions, but which instructions 
get followed and when and which parts of which instructions and which combinations. You said combinatorial, I think. And Mm -hmm. the number of combinations of events that are possible, I mean, the scale is mind-boggling, right? Right, right. And in part because there are all these elements floating around that can turn the genes off. Uh, Bits of DNA can do that. Bits of RNA can do that. Turn them on, slow them down, speed them up. Right. Exactly. That can say which variation of a protein gets made from a particular gene. Because a particular gene can make different versions of a protein. Right. So then you start to get insane complexity, right? Mm -hmm. That's correct. I wanna I wanna know know kind of how you think about it. Is there something you would liken this to? Is it like a giant computer? Is it like a city? Is it like a a jungle, (laughs) an ecosystem? I think the city is a good analogy. Right. Because Uh you have, I guess, you know, you have a control center, which would be the maybe the central government. And then you have. um, Yeah, maybe the city's not such a good analogy. Well, there is no central control in the genome, right? It's this huge network effect. Right. Right. So it's like a city in the sense that a lot of us are self-regulating. I mean, right. We're negotiating among ourselves how we're going to transact business and maybe do right by each other or not. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on at a kind of collective level, right? Right. And there's a lot of feedback going on because to turn on a gene, you need to have the right environment, kind of what I was talking about with this packaging of the DNA. and But then you actually also need the actual machinery that makes the RNA and it turns out, of course, it's not just one protein, but there's many different factors, and there's parts that are important for initiating that, and then parts that are important for extending the RNA molecule, and then parts that are important for, for terminating, for stopping, right? And so every point is a point of potential regulation, And you have to have these regulatory factors at the right place in the right time. And if they can bind multiple places in the genome, then which part of the genome gets transcribed, you know, is affected by what's going on at other places in the genome. Getting back to then uh, this whole idea of jumping genes, transposons, Mm -hmm. uh, bits of DNA that uh, multiply throughout the genome that move around and so on that make up so much of the human genome, you suggested that though they may just have been accidental, that they propagated for the reasons we've already talked about, that they can copy, they can essentially copy themselves, that they now serve a function in regulating, that, mm-hmm. that they now have a role, a kind of accidental role, but one that's now super important? In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. And that suggests that's the reason why we tolerate them. We haven't come up with mechanisms that completely shut them down. Why is that? I would argue that in part it's because it's useful to actually have these new this mechanism to create new potential regulatory DNA. Hmm. And, and do we know for a fact though that um, some of these transposons do perform like a, a regulatory role that they actually absolutely yes. We had a study quite a while ago now where we actually discovered that one of these retrotransposon elements that was actually active in our common ancestor with the coelacanth, which is this crazy lungfish, 
Um, kind of a prehistoric fish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait. So, so we have something in common with the coelacanth? We sure do. We have a lot in common with the coelacanth. But um, <laughs> so one of these elements that um, is actually that particular class of transposable element seems that it was recently still active in the coelacanth, but was active in ancient times in the human in the human lineage. Now. Um, one of those elements is a very important um, driver of expression of a gene that's a transcription factor that's involved in making our the brain. So in order to get the proper expression of that gene, you have to have this element. So is that something your lab has been looking into? Yeah, that was some, it was a study that we did quite some time ago, I think in 2006 or 2008. But you say that this this regulatory factor, this mm -hmm. thing that regulates gene action mm -hmm. is important in uh, the development of the brain. Mm -hmm. When you say development, you mean evolutionarily or do you mean within the... the within an organism. So like, Okay, so, so in a if, if developing was, fetus. Right, exactly. Okay, okay. And it was originally a, a jumping gene or it is mm -hmm. a jumping gene. Mm -hmm. Wow. And by the way, the coelacanth, um, people may know the story of this strange deep sea fish, right, that was pulled up was it 1930s or something like that? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, right. Near South Africa? Yep. And it was thought to be extinct. Right. And some ichthyologist just happened to be walking through a fish market and saw one for sale? Right. Is that true? Yes, that's well, true. <laughs> uh, ichthyologist is a fish biologist. Um, and now, um, have you guys or someone else sequenced the coelacanth genome? Um Yes, there has been. Um, the, the reason that I'm kind of fumbling on this is that uh, it was a very difficult genome, and I just don't know what the status of the coelacanth assembly is, but I'm pretty sure that there's at least a, a draft coelacanth genome. Wow. But, um, and by the way, so it was a huge, huge um, news story, uh, especially for fish people, that the prehistoric, supposedly long extinct beast was discovered in a fish market. Right. And since then, they found some more. Right, right. And, I mean, this particular fish is very interesting because it's actually more closely related to us than the bony fish that we, you know, that we normally see in the, you know, like the tunas and the and the pike. And the, the more modern and the fishes. Perch the modern the fishes. The world. So this, this lungfish is on a, I mean, it's the coelacanth is on this branch that's actually more closely related to us than, the, than these other fish. Wow. So that's, that's part of why it's so, and also because it hasn't changed much. So it, it, it's much more, for whatever reason, um, whether it's, slow generation time or what the the genome is not very is in a more ancient state mm -hmm. it's well preserved in a way yes is that because it doesn't have as many transposons running around perhaps <laughs> although it definitely does have transposons running around <laughs> uh, there's one other thing uh you mentioned that i don't want to leave totally unexplained because uh, it's kind of a a hot um topic these days epigenetics right uh we've been talking about gene regulation uh, via genetic factors, right? RNA and mm -hmm. DNA. But there's yet another set of mechanisms called epigenetic right. mechanisms that also affect um, what parts of our genome do what. Um, right. And this stuff is called epigenetics because it's not, it's not in the genome, it's outside the genome. Right, right. So it turns out 
that our DNA doesn't just exist as a plain helix or a, a, a straight string of bases. It, in fact, is packaged around a set of proteins called histones. And those histones are subject to all kinds of modifications. And the state of those modifications is very important for deciding how the DNA is going to be packaged and how it is accessible to other factors that can lead to gene expression. And it's really interesting because these, the state of the, we call this the chromatin, this packaging of the DNA, and the state of the chromatin can actually be passed on from mother and father to child. Um, and actually, one of my colleagues at Santa Cruz, um, Susan Strom and her student, just recently published a, a, a paper in Science, you know, demonstrating this passing of specific modifications on histones from from um, parent to parent to child. So it's 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 we're starting to be able to explore the mechanism by which that happens. It's it's pretty crazy stuff. It's pretty crazy because um, just as we talked about how much more complicated gene activity is than the old central dogma would have suggested. Mm-hmm. We accepted for a long time, I mean, we collectively, <laughs> the world, the idea that what was inherited was the DNA, and that's it. Right. The genes. You pass the genes on from parent to child, period. But what's also inherited is, as you say, this epigenetic stuff. And this epigenetic stuff doesn't follow the patterns necessarily of classical inheritance. Right. So you can have some traits that like skip generations. Right. Right? Right. Or multiple generations. Right. And the other thing is that the epigenetic state of our genome can be influenced by environmental factors. Oh, ho, ho. So the classic Darwinian or Mendelian idea of inheritance isn't isn't 100 percent exactly it's not like we're suddenly we're suddenly throwing out darwin and going back to lamarck right who had an idea of evolution a very simple idea of evolution that was long ago discredited uh, the idea that something that affects you during your lifetime can then be passed down to your kids right if you work out really hard in the gym maybe your kids will be stronger right, right. that's kind of lamarckian Right. But on a subtle molecular level, it's a little bit true. It's a little bit true. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I think of it as layers. So the genetics, the DNA, the mutations, uh, you know, or, or lack of mutations, that's one layer. Right? right. And that's a foundational layer. Yeah. That it's not that it can't be changed, but it, it, it's, it's more static. And then on top of that, you have this epigenetic regulation which, as you said, can have very complicated patterns of inheritance and can be affected by a multitude of factors. But that adds another layer on top. Mm. It just gets more and more complicated, doesn't it? It does. (laughs) Which is fun. I mean, I get really excited. The more complicated it gets, the more interested I am. (laughs) Right, right. Um, Well, I think it's somewhat satisfying. We think of ourselves as very complex beings, so... Indeed, yeah. And when they, um, when the Human Genome Project, I think it was the Human Genome Project that came out with that number, 
we have you know, somewhere on the order of 18,000, 20,000, or maybe 22,000 genes. Right. What a letdown. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, that's especially all it takes. when they said that, you know, the rice has way more. Yeah. Well, that's all it takes to make a human being? 20,000, like, sentences? Mm-hmm. That's really sad. But, of course, it is orders of magnitude more complicated because of all the things we talked about. The, mm-hmm. um Another fascinating and complicated thing that your lab, your co- you and your colleagues at the Howard Hughes uh, Medical Institute at uh, UC Santa Cruz and the UC Santa Cruz Genomics Institute, have I got that right? <laughs> yes, excellent. Uh, another thing that you guys have been investigating is just the, the dynamics over time, that, what some people call the arms race within the genome, between jumping genes, which like to spread like mm-hmm. weeds, like kudzu, right, mm-hmm. and the genome that wants to keep I mean, I, I don't want to ascribe intention or intelligence to it, but I'm just going to do that for the sake of storytelling. The genome that wants to clean house and right. keep order, right? Right. And so there's this back and forth. Describe that. Right. So the issue is is that for these elements to copy and paste themselves, um, the class that we were studying in this particular studying referencing, they have to get from the DNA into an RNA. That's the first step. And it's absolutely required for these are the retro transposons. Yeah, for making a new copy. And these are the ones that mostly make up, right? You know, so much of our genome. Retro right. transposons. So these are the guys that are still jumping around uh, with reasonable frequency, and so we know that the cell has mechanisms to shut these guys down. And we know that when we look, we see that for the most part the elements that we know that currently exist in the genome, they're, they're turned off. We also know that these transposons are constantly changing to evade this control. So the question is, how do you keep shutting them down? And it turns out that there's a kind of repressive machinery, and the key sort of nucleating factor of that repressive machinery is, is, a, is a protein called CAP1. And what it does is it recruits a bunch of these chromatin modifiers, and wherever CAP1 goes in the genome, it shuts it down. No expression. Chromatin is this protein that's associated with DNA. Right. If you bundle this chromatin really tightly around the DNA, you can stop it from doing anything. You can stop it from doing anything. So it's like putting um, these transposons in handcuffs or something. Right. So that's what CAP1 does. Okay. But it turns out CAP1 doesn't bind DNA. It gets recruited to DNA by a family of proteins called DNA transcription factors. And in particular, CAP1 gets recruited by a particular type of transcription. When you say recruited, what do you mean? It gets, you know, pulled to this site. So go to this spot of the genome as opposed to any other spot of the genome. And so there's this family of proteins called crab zinc finger proteins. (laughs) So crab... Wait, before you go any further, how did you guys come up with that name? I'm about to tell you. Okay. <laughs> so crab is actually an acronym. The crab part of the protein binds to CAP1, okay? And and remind us, CAP1 is... So CAP1's the repressor that generates the DNA off state. Mm. And so then the zinc finger is the DNA binding part. And depending on the number and the type of zinc fingers that the protein is going to bind a different DNA sequence. So knowing that crab zinc finger proteins can recruit CAP1 
to a specific part of the genome based on its DNA sequence um, suggests that if crabs ink fingers bind these transposable elements, they could that that could be how you could target. And the thing that's interesting about crab zinc fingers is they're one of the few proteins that are actually expanding in mammals and particularly in primates. In the human genome, there's on the order of 400 of these proteins. And it turns out that 170 of these zinc finger proteins are primate specific, which means that they were born along the primate lineage. So after primates diverge from all other mammals. So if I could try um, a real simple metaphor, maybe this is too dumb and you can tell me, but let me just try it. Mm -hmm. So CAP1 is this repressor protein. It, mm -hmm. it, it will stop these transposons, these jumping genes from jumping around. Right. It's like a cop who comes and puts them under house arrest, says you cannot go squat on someone else's property. Right. You got to stay there. There's this other protein that is sort of like the bystander who says, there he is, officer. Right. Goes and gets the cop, points to the guy who's, you know, about to leave his house and move in on someone else's territory and says, put him under arrest. Right. That's the crab zinc finger protein. Right. Oh, so that's not too dumb? No, that's pretty good. <laughs> or you could think of it as the beat cop. There we go. The crab zinc finger is the beat cop. And then... Strolling around. And then he finds... He or she. He or she finds the <laughs> element and calls for backup. And the backup is cap one, and, and they come down, and they, they shut down Great. the party. Okay. <laughs> so not only have parts of the genome learned to roam and spread themselves around and propagate, but other parts of the genome have learned how to put an end to their game. Right. And put them behind bars. Right. Okay. So... And you guys have studied how this back and forth kind of... So this was a hypothesis, but nobody had ever been able to prove it. And part of the reason that it was so hard to prove is, as I mentioned, there's a ton of these crabs and fingers. <laughs> and so how do you figure out which one is the right one? What we did was we basically came up with a few tricks to try to identify which one was the right one. And for two different classes of these retrotransposons, we were able to show that a specific crabsing finger protein was able to shut down the element. How'd you prove that? So we did a little trick. We used a, a cell line, which was actually a mouse cell line. So it doesn't have any of these primate crabsing fingers. But that cell line had a copy of one human chromosome. So you implanted this? Well, we actually didn't. We got it from another lab. But you bought it. We, yeah. But somebody <laughs> implanted a human chromosome in a mouse cell. Right. And by the way, this isn't in a mouse. This is like in a test this tube. Is, this is in a, yeah, in the, in the lab, in, right. in a dish. Yeah. And so the first thing that we did was to look to see what was going on with the human transposable elements that are now in this mouse cell. And sure enough, they're going nuts. They're jumping. Well, we could see that they were expressed. They were made into RNA. Okay. We didn't actually test to see whether they jumped. All right. But they started to jump. They were, yeah. They were, <laughs> <coughs> they were active. They, they were got active. active. And they, they were active because there were no cops in the neighborhood. There were knew, no cops. That knew how to recognize them. Right. But the thing that we already knew is that 
we knew that in the mouse, this same CAP1 protein controls the mouse transposable elements. So we hypothesized that if we could just bring in the primate beat cop, that it would be able to call CAP1, right? Call in the reinforcements. And so what we did was that we put in individually primate crabs and fingers to see if any of them would be able to shut down the elements on the human chromosome. And it worked. It worked. Oh, boy. I want to go through this one more time. Again, radio listeners may lose the thread, and I don't want them to. You guys got yourself out on the uh, wherever you buy these things. Well, Some... actually, we didn't buy it. We, we wrote. <laughs> so people had made these this, this cell line for a completely different line of experiments. You got yourself some mouse cells. Yes, that, that had, had a human chromosome. Human chromosome in them. And in this human chromosome are some of these transposons, these retrotransposons, these jumping genes that like to move around and duplicate themselves. But they're in a mouse house, and the mouse house doesn't have any, uh, any of the proper crab zinc finger proteins that normally stop these things from replicating inside the human genome. Mm-hmm. So they started to go wild. Exactly. And then you added some crab. So we brought, the, we brought in the good, the good cop. The crab zinc fingers, right? From primates, you say, from right. like apes or something? Well, no, from humans. From humans, we, we, okay. We put the human gene back in, and the jumping, and it and shut it's, down, and it shut it down. Wow, I know there are a lot of crazy things going on in molecular biology these days, but that's just amazing. That you guys can do that, yes, yes, and even tell what's going on in the meantime. Right, right. By the way, you you help run or you run what's called a wet lab. Right. At this Genomics Institute slash Howard Hughes Medical Institute at UC Santa Cruz. Right. We call it the wet lab to contrast it with the dry lab. Yes. So the dry lab is the computer guys. So those are the people that um, run algorithms on the genomic sequences to make predictions. They don't actually deal with molecules. They just deal with information about the molecules. Right. And in the wet lab, we grow cells, we do assays, we, we, we play with molecules. And so it's a back and forth. So a lot of the experiments that we do ultimately result in sequencing. And then we get the sequence information that we punt over to the dry lab folks to analyze, and then they communicate back to us, and that you know, and then that makes us try new experiments, uh, you know, and, and we keep the cycle going. And so, getting back to what we were just talking about, the dry lab made a major contribution to this study because once we figured out who went with who, meaning meaning which crabs and finger was responsible for shutting down which class of transposable element, we could look at the evolutionary history of both the transposable element and the crabs and finger and try to understand how it was that the transposable element was active for a little bit and then the crabs and finger shut, shut it down. What we discovered is that the crab's ink finger appeared well before the transposable element got active. But at about the time that the transposable element got active, suddenly we see changes in the protein sequence when we, in, its, in its history. So 
in the case of uh, one of the proteins that um, binds an element that is actually still active in orangutan, but no longer active in human, chimpanzee, or gorilla, what we see is at the time of the common ancestor of human, chimpanzee, and gorilla, this protein underwent dramatic changes. It got six new zinc fingers. There was, a, there was actually a transposable element that jumped in it that removed three zinc fingers. So there was just this burst of change that happened right at that time. And so then if we, we actually, because of cool molecular biology, we could reconstruct that ancestral form of the protein right after all these new changes happened and show that that form of the protein can turn off the element. Are you suggesting then that the origin of our line of the primate family tree, the branching off of mm -hmm. human beings, had something to do with perhaps which transposons were able to jump and which ones weren't? No, no, not really. I mean, more what I'm saying is that when this crabzing finger was born, it wasn't necessarily born being the perfect cop for, in this case, they're uh -huh. called SVA elements. Mm -hmm. It maybe had a little bit of affinity for them, but it wasn't that good. Uh -huh. But because these elements jumping was a bad thing, there was a, a strong pressure for changes in that in that factor to make it better. Okay, the, and, pre the pressure coming from outside, right? The, the ape or the human ancestor or whatever mm -hmm. didn't do so well mm -hmm. when its genome was compromised by this particular jumping mm -hmm. gene, mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, so you've been describing a process um, of kind of intragenomic, inside the genome, right. evolution, right? Right. Of all the things we think of as happening outside, animals competing against each other for <laughs> right. territory, right. Right. one getting the upper hand, another one going extinct, or at least its population declining. Exactly. And then it comes back and, you know, on and on. All that's happening inside our genome. Inside our genome. And the elements that are competing aren't animals, obviously. They're bits of DNA. Exactly. Now, how much of this actually just happens there, you know, sort of under the evolutionary radar, going on without really affecting us at the organismal level and not affecting evolution and just is happening back there is sort of a background, you know, sort of um, ruckus <laughs> down there, an in-house fight, you know? Right. It doesn't really rise to the level of evolution, you know, or adaptation. And how much of it actually is, to use a fancy word, phenotypically expressed in a way that shows up at, at, at the level of an animal or a plant, you know, uh, and its success or failure, you know, in the environment? Um, I'm not quite sure how to answer that. Um, is some of it, do you think, going on so far below the radar that it really doesn't affect uh, survival and some of it does? Right. So the fact that we see these dramatic changes in these proteins that coincide with the time that um, these transposable elements get active to then shut, you know, that suggests that it is having an important effect. Because otherwise, why would you get this sudden period of change? Right? So that says that it was affecting the ability of that ancestral organism to survive. So there was a strong selection. And then 
getting back to what we were talking about earlier, which was this whole idea of these transposable elements spawning regulatory DNA that becomes important for, for the host. When we look at these zinc finger proteins, the elements that they evolved to shut down are not really jumping in our genomes that much anymore. And so why do we continue to have these zinc finger proteins? So why do we have 400 zinc finger proteins? Because most of them, the transposon that they evolved to shut down got silenced eons ago. But we still have the gene. It, it hasn't decayed. So that suggests that it's been repurposed for something important. So that's one of the places that we get the evidence that we think that now these, you know, relics of old jumping genes now are serving a different function in the cell. And, and that function is they're part of this huge switching apparatus that right. is really what makes our genome function the way right. it does. Right, so deciding when and where different parts of our genome are going to get expressed. Right. And the when and where could be when in development, where, what cell types. I mean, there's, think about the diversity of the, what that is the human body. Right. I mean, all of our cells, uh, with the exception maybe of red blood cells, have a complete complement of our, our genes in them, mm -hmm. have all our genes. And yet, in some cells, uh, a lot of those genes are turned off, and that's what makes the difference between a bone cell and a liver cell and a brain cell and a skin cell and all those other kinds of cells. It's which genes are working and which ones aren't. Right. Mm. So you're saying that the mechanisms that may have evolved originally to shut down transposons, mm -hmm. it's really those things that might now be involved in helping to control when the, and whole, where. the whole pattern of gene expression. Exactly. That's so essential to everything. Exactly. Wow. What's the most exciting moment you've had in your career of researching this stuff? Um, I think you know, for this particular project, when we realized that these mouse cells with the human chromosome, that sure enough, the, the human transposable elements were going nuts, that was an amazing, because we had speculated that this would be the case, um, but it was true. And the, the other ex the exciting thing about that was now we had an assay where we could, you know, put back the, 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 the human primate-specific zinc fingers and see an effect. So that was... You had a way of measuring it. We had a way of measuring it. Hey, do you want to um, name any of the other folks involved in this? Oh, absolutely. So on the wet lab side... This was a team effort of Frank Jacobs, a postdoctoral scholar who now is an assistant professor at the University of Amsterdam, and David Greenberg, who was a graduate student who recently uh, finished as well. And on the computational side, uh, Nan Nguyen, and, who is a, a graduate student, and Benedict Patton, who is a, a project scientist who leads the comparative genomics efforts. So, so your work and, and the work of others has helped to flesh out this picture of a really dynamic, I'm going to use the word ecosystem, down there at the genomic level. Mm -hmm. Bits of DNA doing things on their own, moving around, duplicating themselves, stopping each other from duplicating, and so on. Some of it contributing actually to evolution, mm -hmm. right? 
Um, does it have any practical implications? The inevitable question from media uh, at this point. There's two areas where sort of understanding how this interplay works, how transposable element movement is controlled is important. One is in cancer. So cancer is a genetic disease where you get all kinds of dysregulation of regulatory processes. And now that we're sequencing thousands of cancer genomes, we're, we're actually starting to see evidence of transposable elements jumping around and being a potential mutagenic force in cancer, in, in tumors. You mean these jumping genes jumping in such a way that they interfere with or alter the, the um, action of necessary genes? Right. Right? Potentially, and, yes. And maybe causing cells to go berserk and multiply out of control and cause cancer. Right, right. And so the other area where this is uh, potentially quite important is in the emerging area of regenerative medicine. So there's you know, these seminal discoveries that you can reprogram adult cells into a pluripotent-like cell that could potentially be used a to... A stem cell? A stem cell that could be used to generate new tissues, either for drug studies or potentially to implant back into a person to repair defects. But one of the things that's... Um, emerging is that this reprogramming is a massive epigenetic reprogramming. And one of the things that happens is reactivation of retrotransposons. And it's in fact important to generate these cells, but knowing how to control it is going to be important for making sure that these induced stem cells are safe for use in medicine. Ah, maybe remind listeners that a stem cell is a cell that unlike a, a completely specialized cell like a skin cell or a liver mm -hmm. cell has the ability to produce all kinds of different, cell different types. cells. And so this has brought great hope for repairing damaged tissues, um, all sorts of um, aging-related projects and uh, processes, and and there are sure, therapies. Sure, in... make me some pancreas cells. Make me some brain cells. Right, and, and so re and recently there was a big high-profile study that um, uh, Doug Mountain's group has finally been successful in getting these these stem cells to make um, uh, insulin-producing beta islet cells in the pancreas. In a dish. In a dish. Well, ultimately in the pancreas. And maybe. so the idea is is that ultimately you might be able to to put this back into a, in a human. In a diabetic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and produce insulin properly again. Right. But if if those if those cells have these transposable elements jumping around, that could be a bad thing. And you were suggesting that to make a stem cell, you unlock some of the DNA that's right. been locked up by the chromatin. Right. right. But in so doing, you might unleash these crazy transposons too. Right. right. So your work and the work of others may show us how to create a good a stem better, cell. A better stem cell from these adult cells. Wow. Right. Fantastic. On a bigger level, on a philosophical level, we've touched on this a bit, but I'm just curious how someone like you, who's so intimately involved with parts of the genome, now thinks of this apparatus system um, world down there inside of our cells. Mm -hmm. how, how do you think of it? 
What do you mean? I mean, well, it's what inspires me to go to work every day. Well, I mean, you know, I still am stuck with an image of genetic letters, and I'm just seeing all these letters mi mixing it up like alphabet soup. What do you think of when you oh, think of I the genome? Oh, I think of a three-dimensional, pulsating, complex machine. A really complex machine? Yeah. Yes. Like, how complex? I don't know. In my mind's eye, when I, it's, it's like this jumble. What an amazing jumble, though. <laughs> Sophie Salama is a senior scientist at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute at UC Santa Cruz and also a researcher at the UC Santa Cruz Genomics Institute. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, And uh, just a couple of footnotes before I make my exit. Uh, things that we've mentioned and that maybe I didn't explain so well or so accurately. I referred to chromatin as the protein that binds with DNA. Uh, and they come together in this sort of packaging. Uh, actually, chromatin is the package that includes DNA and the protein. But the proteins, uh, as Sophie pointed out, are called histones. And uh, then there was the uh, point where I said that germ cells are sperm and egg cells. Not quite. Uh, germ cells are the cells that produce sperm and egg cells. But uh, the main point remains the same, that only when jumping gene events occur in the germline uh, that produces those reproductive cells, are those changes passed down to offspring. If uh, jumping genes jump in other kinds of cells, well, that business ends with the particular organism. It doesn't get passed down at all, and uh, it doesn't affect future generations. And finally, uh, there was the old coelacanth story, which uh, I got partially right, but I was actually mashing up two different events. Yes, uh, in the 1930s, uh, the supposedly extinct coelacanth was discovered in South Africa, but uh, not by an ichthyologist wandering through a fish market, but actually by a museum curator who was inspecting the catch of a local fisherman and uh, discovered the freaky fish there. But uh, fast forward about 60 years to 1997, and a coral reef biologist was wandering through a fish market in Indonesia when he spotted a coelacanth being sold for seafood. Uh, and that was a big deal because, of course, coelacanths were extremely rare but also not known to live in that part of the world. And uh, this population was so different that some people have said that it's a distinct species, a second species of coelacanth. Anyway, that wraps up uh, this week's error report. I will be back next week to make more mistakes. You can bet on it. And in the meantime, uh, you can listen to past shows and learn more at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. Or you can listen via iTunes, SoundCloud, the Stitcher radio app, and lots of other podcast apps. You can pretty much tune in anywhere and anytime, and I hope you do. 